So we are making our way through the season of Advent, the four weeks leading up to Christmas, a time of preparation and anticipation. And our theme this year is drawn near. We're looking at the art of Advent. We're daring to see the season through the eyes and the ears of artists. We've heard from poets, from painters, from musicians, inviting them to show us and to allow us to hear things that we may otherwise miss. Our text this morning on this fourth Sunday of Advent is from Luke's Gospel, and it actually comes just after the birth of Jesus. Now, I know that we are still in the season of Advent, and there may be some, there may be some who may bark at me for looking at this text. If you're a purist, you know that you don't talk about texts after Christmas during Advent. It's sort of like singing Easter hymns in Lent, but bear with me today, if you will. It's the story of Simeon, who is a a devout Jew who's been awaiting for the fulfillment of God's promises, for the redemption of the people of Israel. For generations, the people of Israel had been waiting for the Messiah, the one that would come to, to set their people free. Years before, Simeon had been told by the Holy Spirit that he would not die until he had seen the Messiah with his own two eyes. Simeon was getting old, and time was running out. Now, after Jesus was born in the days after that, his parents, in accordance with the law of Moses, they take the child to the temple in Jerusalem, and there he was circumcised, he was named, he was presented to the priest along with an offering. And again, all of this was customary in accordance to the law. Now, Simeon was told, once again, guided by the Holy Spirit, that he needed to be there on that day. And when he sees the baby Jesus, he knows that this is the one that he'd been waiting for. This was the one that they had been praying for, that they had been living in anticipation for. This child was the fulfillment of the promise of God God's love being revealed to us. He asked Mary and Joseph if he could hold the baby. And they said he could, just as long as you don't drop him, which is the same instructions that I was given before we did the child dedication. And what we will hear, what we will hear is the prayer that he offered as he held that child in his arms. The scripture reading comes from Luke, second chapter, beginning at verse 25 through 32. Now begins the reading. Now there was a man in Jerusalem whose name was Simeon. This man was righteous and devout, looking forward to the consolation of Israel, and the Holy Spirit rested on him. It had been revealed to him by the Holy Spirit that he would not see death before he had seen the Lord's Messiah. Guided by the Spirit, Simeon came into the temple, and when the parents brought in the child Jesus to do for him what was customary under the law, Simeon took him in his arms and praised God, saying, Master, Now you are dismissing your servant in peace according to your word. 
for my eyes have seen your salvation, which you have prepared in the presence of all peoples, a light for revelation to the Gentiles and for the glory to your people Israel. Here ends the reading, the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. So I too want to add my greetings to those that are joining us online and listening on the radio this morning. We're glad that you are here and very much part of this community of faith wherever you are. So I love this story. I love that image of Simeon, that old man who's bent over with arthritic fingers cradling this newborn baby. And I can see it in my mind's eye. I can, I can see the tears welling up in his eyes. He is overjoyed, as if he were holding his own grandchild for the first time. Maybe part of the reason that this moves me is that I had a birthday this week. And while it wasn't a big one, I feel like I'm getting closer to the age where they're all big ones, if you know what I mean. We're just thankful to have another one. And I'm feeling a little bent over and arthritic these days. I was reminded this week of a story about a guy about my age who was, who was getting uh, on a crowded airport shuttle. And while he was standing there holding on to the rail, he noticed that there was this young woman sitting there next to him, very attractive, probably in her early 20s. And she looked up and caught his eye and smiled at him with this great, big, beautiful smile. And this man, about my age, smiled back, and in the back of his mind, he's thinking, yeah, I still got it. (laughs) And he looked back, and she was still looking at him, and she smiled once again. And then she stood up and motioned to his empty chair, her empty chair, and said, sir, would you like to sit down? That story hits a little too close to home for me this week. I can't help but feel a bond, a little connection with Simeon. Don't get me wrong, I'm in no hurry to be a grandparent, but I'm very well aware that I'm closer to the age of Simeon than I was to that woman on the shuttle. I've always found this story to be interesting. We can all know what it's like, right, to want something so badly, so bad that you can taste it to have what you so desperately want just out of your reach, to work and to wait, to wonder, to want, and you want this more than you've wanted anything in your entire life. I know a church that does a Christmas pageant every year, and there was a young boy by the name of Tommy who couldn't wait for the Christmas pageant because this was the year he thought that he was going to be Joseph. If you're a little boy, the best role in the pageant is Joseph. Mary gets all the credit, but to be a boy, and Joseph is about as good as he gets. But this time, though, however, he was given the role of the innkeeper. No one wants to be the innkeeper. You get to be the bearer of bad news. No one likes the innkeeper. There's no glory in that. And so Tommy brooded and planned his revenge. And the night of the performance, he was ready. And when there was a knock at the door... 
Tommy, the innkeeper, opens the door and he takes a deep breath and he says, Mary, Joseph, come on in. You'll have the best room in the house. Well, Joseph was given this role because he was a pretty sharp cookie himself, and so he panicked for just a moment, but gathered himself, and he said, Mary, I've got this. And he looked inside the door, and he says, Mary, this place is a dump. I'm, I'm not taking my wife into a place like this. This is no place for a baby. Let's go sleep in the barn. Poor Tommy didn't get anything that he wanted. He didn't get the role, the part. He didn't get the revenge. He didn't get anything that he wanted. A couple of years ago, I spoke with a woman, uh, I think it was about the fourth Sunday of Advent, and I asked her how things were going, what she wanted for Christmas. And she took a deep breath, and she says, well, to be honest with you, I just want to get through it. Ever since my husband died, this time of year has just been so hard, and it makes me miss him even more. In each year, I wait to see if the hurt has let up any since last year, and I hope and I pray and I want it to so that I can start to move on, but I don't want to because it might mean that I've stopped caring. So what do I want, Russ? She says, I just want to make it through. What about you? What do you want? What do you hope and pray that Christmas brings you this year? You see, Simeon, like so many in that time, they had been living in anticipation, praying for this day, for this child, for the fulfillment of God's promises. The people of Israel had been waiting for hundreds of years. The prophet Isaiah, back in the 600s BCE, had, had, had said the child is the root of Jesse, the stump of David. This child will be coming. And for generations, they had been waiting and wanting these promises to come true. And you have to imagine, right, that both individually as well as collectively, that that they may have started at least at some point in those hundreds of years to lose faith. That the hope started to slip through their fingers. That they might have started to doubt if they ever would. They might have flirted with despair. It's a long time to want something, especially something that you want so bad that you can taste it. Now, I mentioned that this season we've been looking at the art of Advent. We've heard from the poets and the painters and the musicians. This morning, I want to talk a little bit about the filmmakers. If I were to ask you this morning, what is the best, what is your favorite Christmas movie of all time, what would you say? Just go ahead and blurt it out. Charlie Brown Christmas, Scott, yes. It's a Wonderful Life, absolutely. In the Peterman household, we would say it's a tie between Elf and National Lampoon's Christmas Vacation. We have very, very simple tastes in the Peterman household. But I think, I think It's a Wonderful Life, that's one that I like too. I watched that with my daughter this week on my birthday. Did you know it was... Made in 1946, which makes this the 75th anniversary of It's a Wonderful Life. But did you also know, however, that that when it first came out in 1946, that it was a box office failure? 
It wasn't all that popular until years later when the copyrights ran out and it was able to be placed on TV in 1976 when NBC started picking it up that it started to gain, gain some prominence. And did you know that while it was nominated for six Academy Awards, that it didn't win any? The only acclaim that it was given was an honorary award by the Academy for Technical Achievement, what would eventually be known as special effects, the development of the snow. That's what I learned in movie appreciation at TCU 30 years ago. That's all I remember from that entire class. I've just told you everything that I know. It's hard to calculate, though, how many people have watched it over the years, how many people watch it still every year. It's still widely considered to be one of the greatest, most watched films of all times. It's the story, of course, of George Bailey, who wanted more than anything to get out of Bedford Falls, that little town where he grew up. He had big dreams. He wanted to to travel the world. He wanted to see things, experience things, to build things. He wanted big things, things that this little town couldn't give him. Do you remember in that conversation that he had with Mary that night? I know what I'm going to do tomorrow and the next day and the next year and the year after that. I'm going to shake the dust of this crummy little town off my feet and I'm going to see the world. And then I'm going to build things. I'm going to build airfields and skyscrapers. I'm going to build bridges a mile long. He had big dreams, big plans of what his life was going to be. But, but of course, when his father dies, he acquiesces and takes over the family business, building and loan. And he gives his college tuition to his younger brother, Harry, with the understanding that he'd take over the family business when he graduated from college so that George then could go and chase after the dreams and the plans that he had. But of course, that never materializes either, and he finds himself several years later, after a strong, strange confluence of events, he finds himself on a bridge on Christmas Eve contemplating suicide. But yet his prayers, as well as the prayers of his friends and his family, they reach heaven where this angel, the second class, Clarence Oddbody, is assigned to save George and also earn his wings. But by the time Clarence, the angel, finds him, he is so distraught and so hopeless that he just wishes he's never born. It would have been better, he said, if I'd just never been born. And so Clarence then shows him a timeline in which he never existed. He could see, he could see what the world would be like without him. And, of course, we know what that looks like. Bedford Falls is now Pottersville, this unsavory town occupied by sleazy bars and dance halls, awful, amoral people. And the town is named after the mean old rich businessman who's been trying unsuccessfully to take over George's business for years. And his brother, Harry, his younger brother, who went away to college and ended up becoming a war hero, saving hundreds of people, well, it turns out, Turns out that none of that ever happened because he died as a boy, because George wasn't there to save him. And so not only did Harry never live, neither did all those people that he saved in the war. What he comes to discover is that a world without George is no world at all. 
And he sees just how much of an impact he's made, how his life really does matter, how big and wonderful his life really is, even if it's not at all what he dreamed it would be, how it would all go. And the life that he has is the life that he would have dreamed of if he had known in the first place. And in that beautiful ending, Harry delivers that short but powerful toast to my big brother George, the richest man in town. Has your life turned out the way you thought it would? As you dreamed it might, or did you want and envision something else? Have you been waiting for what seems like generations for your life to get better? To be different, you started growing cynical, started losing hope maybe, maybe even started to flirt with despair. You thought your life was going to be here, and yet it's way over here, not at all like you thought it was going to be. And maybe you've even given up and resigned to the fact that maybe this, this is all there is. Some of you, I heard it right down here in front when I asked about your favorite Christmas movie. Mentioned Charlie Brown's Christmas. That's one of my favorites too. And if ever there was one whose life never seems to go as he'd wish, it was Charlie's Brown. Charlie Brown. Here was a kid who acknowledged the sadness just beneath the festivities, the, the loneliness, the aching, the search for meaning that is often buried underneath the tinsel. Charlie Brown is sad, and so Lucy asks him to direct the Christmas pageant. And he decides to buy a tree to put on top of the stage, and, and he buys the tree that the kids don't like, and that just makes him even more sad. They start making fun of him. Maybe because they've missed the meaning of Christmas altogether, and so he wonders, and he asks, does anyone, does anyone know what Christmas is all about? And in my favorite scene in the entire film is when, is when Linus, beautiful Linus, walks out on stage and says, yes, I do. And then, and then, and then in that sweet moment, he recites from the King, Vang, King James Version of Luke chapter 2. And when he gets to the point where he quotes the angel, fear not, fear not, for I bring good tidings of great joy. Do you notice, do you notice what happens in that moment? In that moment, Linus, the one who is holding on always to that blanket, he lets it go. He lets go in that moment when he says, fear not, for I bring you good tidings of joy, great joy. It's a sweet moment. It falls to the floor. And Linus lets go of his security blanket so that he can be all that God has created him to be. Is there anything, church, that you need to let go of this morning? Is it fear? Is it worries that you aren't enough? Is it unreasonable expectations about either your Christmas or maybe even your life? That life should have turned out only the way you've envisioned it. You see, I think security blankets come in all shapes and sizes. I mentioned a few weeks ago about a survey that came out Barner Research had done that revealed something like 51% of clergy have considered in the last year of not only quitting their jobs, but of leaving the ministry altogether. 
I know a couple of colleagues that have done just that. The last couple of years with the pandemic and all the racial tensions and the political polarization that's been causing, there's so much division, not only in the country, but also in the church. And we have been forced to stand in the gap, to be peacemakers and grace givers, to be tone setters. And for some folks, it's just been too much. And they've walked away. Brian McLaren, who's a pastor, prolific writer, said that a clergy friend of his was in one of those spots. She had lost her faith. She couldn't find much hope. And so we asked, so why do you keep coming back week after week? She said in that moment, because I still have love. I still have love. I'm showing up for love. And Brian laughed and said, you know, that gives me hope. You see, church, in the days to come, we will gather with hopeful hearts, with angels all around us, to hear the old story of how God is doing a new thing. And we will discover once again that God has drawn near to us in the most unexpected of ways, not like anyone expected, not like anyone wished for, but my friends, it is an answer to prayers nonetheless. And we will stand that night on tiptoes. And we will peer over the side of the manger. And we will see the face of love. And that, that will give us all hope. Amen.